Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Mark. I'd like to pause here and just let you know that this is a reading that has two portions of text placed together. We'll see or read about a lot of people following Jesus to one side of the lake and then coming back. And what happens in the middle is the feeding of the 5,000. So if you're wondering what happened, that's what happened. All right. But next week, we'll get John's version of that. So your imagination is welcome. The apostles gathered around Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. He said to them, come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a deserted place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they hurried there on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. As he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored the boat. When they got out of the boat, people at once recognized him and rushed about that whole region and began to bring the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages or cities or farms, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might touch even the fringe of his cloak and all who touched it were healed. The Gospel of the Lord. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. This last Friday night, I took my son, Liam, who's 11 years old, to see the yellow submarine. I had, I had never seen it. Yes, I'd never seen it. So, uh, 50th year anniversary, remastered. I thought it, I thought it was time. So, if you ha- if you're like me and you have not seen it, uh, or if you need some reminding, uh, what happens is the blue meanies come to this beautiful, colorful, peaceful, flourishing world, and enact violence with a big glove. And the color disappears from the world, and the world becomes flat and still, and people are fixed. There's one motion that they can still do, and that is to cry. They can still cry. So the Beatles go in the yellow submarine, and eventually they bring the nowhere man somewhere. And, oh, I forgot to tell you, this was a sing-along. All right, so 710, the 710 show in Berkeley in the Elmwood is always a sing-along. So if you want to come in the next week, I'll join you. I'll go again. Anyway, so, so the Beatles, through their music and through bringing the nowhere man somewhere and meeting up with the meanies again, are able to restore the world. But at the end, the Beatles, one of them says, to two of the meanest blue meanies, 
Will you join us? Will you join us? And I asked Liam the next day, why do you think they said, will you join us, rather than just having them go off to another blue world somewhere, rather than just getting rid of the enemy? I gave the line away. And he said, rather than just getting rid of them. And he said, because then they wouldn't be enemies. I didn't use the word enemies. He said, because then they wouldn't be enemies. I thought, wow, that's right. You know, at the end of wars, right, you think everybody's just going to go off to their own corner of the world, but these truces are made and these new alliances between countries get formed. Political alliances, economic alliances, new partnerships, even with military might. It takes a while, but it happens. Enemies become allies. This is the kind of vision we have in Paul. In Paul's, what's now called the letter to the Ephesians, where the walls of hostility are broken down and the people are called together to be a holy dwelling for God. And what's perhaps unusual or revolutionary or revelationary in this vision is that in Paul's preaching, he's not only talking about reconciliation between God and humanity through the sacrifice of Christ, through the blood of the Lamb. It's not this kind of reconciliation. It's this kind of reconciliation or this kind of reconciliation. He is talking about the reconciliation between Jews and Gentiles, between the ones who have been in covenant with God, but the covenant is open now to all. Now, what's curious about this letter, and the reason I was going like this, is because the beginning of the letter to the Ephesians is not, I, Paul, write to you, Ephesians. Paul writes to the saints. This was a letter that was circulated. It was a letter not written to one single community. When Paul's letters were collated, when they were all gathered together, there was a copy of the letter in Ephesus, which was an important city. And so the letter was taken from Ephesus, probably, and then attributed in the canon to the Ephesians. But it was a letter that was meant to be circulated. And so therefore, the reconciliation that happens is not only between God and humanity, not only between Jews and Gentiles, but it is a reconciliation if all are being built into the holy temple of God between people here and here and here and here and even with us. There is a play that is happening between body and temple. The covenant was in the body, 
through circumcision. So there is a, a difference between, a division between the circumcised and the uncircumcised. The unity is now in the body of Christ, but in these bodies who uphold one another. That, that sort of play already between body and temple is happening in another place in Scripture, and that is in, in, our, in our reading from 2 Samuel. So where there's a lot of play on the word house. And before we look at 2 Samuel 7, I just want to take you back to 2 Samuel 5. We begin to listen how house is used. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons, who built David a house. And David perceived that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. I love this idea. You know, David has been anointed. David has fought Goliath. David has... has has brought unity between the north and the south. David has moved the ark, the political center, so that it can become the spiritual center. And now David, David's palace, his own house, is built by another king who sends cedars of Lebanon, the best building materials there is. The best building material there is. It's fragrant. It's strong. You saw my article this week. It's, it also keeps bugs away and keeps and guards against rocks. It's very, very good. Right now, all the cedars of Lebanon are dying from climate change. So read in the New York Times. I mean, it's not. It's it's funny, but it's not funny. That no. So New York Times article this week uh, on Thursday. So, but it was the best building material for palaces and for temples and for seafaring vessels as well. So here's David, who's sitting in his palace. And he, it kind of dawns on him, maybe he was established as king, right? <laughs> His own palace speaks to him, in a sense. But it's not all about him, all right? He, his household is being established for the sake of, people, of the people of Israel. He is a king for the people. So that takes us right into 2 Samuel 7, where we have a bit of, of humor, right? God... David is sitting in his palace again, and he says, oh no, I'm sitting in this beautiful palace out of cedar, and God is in a tent. The ark is in a tent. The ark which sort of provides this locus for the presence of God. And God answers, are you the one to build me a house to live in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day but I have been moving about in a tent and a tabernacle. God isn't too bothered by this. For hundreds of years, God has been moving around uh, with the people in a tent or a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about among all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the tribal leaders of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? That hasn't been God's concern. God's concern has been to be with the people. God's concern has been that the leaders of the people should shepherd the people. 
should shepherd the people. And so he says to David, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be prince over my people Israel. This isn't a rags-to-riches story. This is a use of a gift. David, who was a shepherd, is brought to the people of Israel to be their shepherd. It's the transference of a gift, a skill, an embodiment of care. And then there is all of this play on house, on the word house, that God does not want David to build him a house. He will build David's house. But house means, it can mean palace. It can come to mean temple. It can mean family status. It can mean dynasty. The son of David, Solomon, will build the house that will be the temple of God. David will pull the people together to bring their gold and silver and other implements to build the house. David will offer a prayer which we say almost every Sunday, all things come of thee, O Lord, and of thine own have we given thee. That was the prayer that was offered in the building of the temple. And so when we make our offerings, we are also building this dwelling place for God. God also says about Solomon, he will be my son and I will be his father. And so there is this mixing of house, lineage, family, and temple. Dwelling place for God. Because the temple that is built by Solomon is to be a house of prayer for all peoples. That is the vision, that all peoples shall come together to worship God. That is the vision in the prophets. And that is the vision that Paul gives us as well that the hostility is broken down, the covenant is opened up, the walls are broken down, not only between God and humanity, through sin and forgiveness, through Jews and Gentiles, through the opening out of covenant, but those other circular relations are called in. This is the vision, this is the hope that we are all still living into. On a very local level, I invite you to think about this dwelling place of God, this house. How is it that we are all spiritual stones, that we are here supporting one another? What if one is removed? How are our gifts brought in for the good of the whole? How are our gifts received? How is there weakness when our gifts are not received? 
This is one place. We have our diocese. We have our national church. National collective. We have other denominations. We have other faith communities with whom we are continuously being joined. And yet there's more. The past couple weeks, I've mentioned that at General Convention, there was a commitment that was made on behalf of our delegates in the House of Deputies and our bishops in the House of Bishop to commit our church to racial reconciliation and to justice and to healing. And I'm not, I'm not sure that I quite agree with this, uh, you know, in Christ there is no East or West because there is an East and a West and racism looks different in different parts of the country. Racial justice might look different in different parts of the country. Racial healing might call us to different kinds of work. But we are called to be, in the phrase that Martin Luther King Jr. gave us, a beloved community. And that is an image that the whole church is taking up. It is not just our training days quarterly in this diocese, right? The beloved community training days, equipping the beloved community. It's not just about that. Listen to Martin Luther King, Jr. The end is reconciliation. The end is redemption. The end is the creation of the beloved community. It is this type of spirit and this type of love that can transform opponents into friends. It is this type of understanding goodwill that will transform the deep gloom of the old age into the exuberant gladness of the new age. It is this love which will bring about miracles in the heart of man. Sounds a little bit like the blue meanies, right? Not being blue meanies any longer. About the restoration of full color and movement and friendship, asking that the enemies might join in. Maybe there was something to the Beatles, and all you need is love. Or at the end, all together now, if you haven't seen it, there's this rousing chorus of all together now, all together, and all together now flashes across the screen in different languages. This is a vision of hope, but also responsibility that Paul has given us in the name of Christ. It is tied to that, old, that older vision of all peoples coming to worship. It is a building together of a new humanity, and in that new humanity is a dwelling place for God. The Roman Catholic Jesuit who teaches computer science in Silicon Valley, he writes sacramental theology. And in one of his books on sacramental theology, he says the first sacrament 
that we come to, into contact with, that we come into the church, is the assembly. We might think that we see the baptismal font here. We might come through the door and see the altar. But the first sacramental sign, the outward sign of the inward and invisible grace, is the assembly. You are a sacrament. You are the living stones. You are the very dwelling place of God. But we have work to do. In the words of the Bishop of Atlanta, speaking about the Absalom Jones, Absalom Jones Center for Racial Reconciliation and Justice in Atlanta, he says we need to mind the gap. We need to close the gap between our words and our actions. All together now. All you need is love. As a start, and maybe as an end, but let us build together, and let us together be the very dwelling place of God. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast from the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. We are a growing community welcoming those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and to journey in faith with God's people through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name. You may reach us by phone at 415-388-1907, search for us online, or visit our website at OurSaviorMillValley.org. We wish you God's peace. We hope to greet you in person very soon.